do it. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Book Goodies podcast. Today, I am jo- well. Today, I'm your host, Deborah Carney, and I am joined today by guests Carla Sarrett and Lynn Cantwell. Hi, ladies. How are you? Pretty doing okay good so far. How you doing? Good. Um, we had a little technical difficulty, so we're running a little. We might be a, sound a little rushed, but <laughs> we're okay now. <laughs> um, uh, ladies, why don't you start out by um, introducing yourself to the folks that are listening? Carla, you want to start us off? Yes, my name's Carla Surrett, and I am a market researcher turned fiction writer. And I started publishing my short stories in literary journals in 2011. And then uh, last year, I published my first collection of short stories. And in 2014, another collection. And now I am coming out with a comic novel, a romantic comedy for those of you who follow genre. Oh, that's lovely. And (laughs) Lynn, you want to introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Lynn Cantwell. Um, I am uh, right now writing urban fantasy and contemporary fantasy. Um, I have a five-book urban fantasy series called The Pipe Woman Chronicles, Um, urban fantasy, paranormal romance, slice and dice. We can talk about that. Um, And the uh, series I'm working on right now is Land, Sea, Sky. And in my previous life, I was a broadcast journalist for 20 years. So, Awesome. You're going to be on the podcast more often. (laughs) (laughs) You you walk right in. Well, Lynn and I share a television background because I used to work in in television at NBC and then home box office so we oh that's right yeah I, I used to do journalism research news news audience research oh, so okay. we we awesome. have an alliance there there we go Indeed. some commonality of interests so I guess I should have said right at the top which I didn't because um, I was flummoxed by the technical issues we're going to talk about genre today and uh, the reason I did I uh, wanted to do a podcast about genre is because on the book goodies website and on other websites that I run Authors are submitting their books, and then they seem to be a little bit confused over genre, and I'm actually a little confused over genre as well. So um, I'm working on a a fantasy book that I'm not quite sure how to classify, so I'm interested in in discussing that. And one of the things I want to get out of the way right off the bat is that recently I had an author that tried to list a book as both fiction and nonfiction, and... For those of you listening, it should be pretty clear that, that um, Carla, you, you said it best in the pre-show discussion we had. Uh, you want to explain how you, how you classified that? The definition of nonfiction is that it's not fiction. It must be true. <laughs> so if your book is true, it is by definition not fiction. Yeah. I mean, that should be pretty clear, but there are people that... Um, and I guess it's people who are mostly covering things like history that, you know, they, they want a wider audience. So they think that by classifying it as historical fiction instead of just nonfiction is going to get them more readers. But what you're going to end up doing is upsetting people because they Because are, it's fraud. It's fraud. That's exactly what I was just going to say. Yeah, somebody who picks up a book thinking it's historical fiction and it's going to be, you know, uh, uh, not real characters inserted into fictional or into, you know, true events, they're going to be really surprised if what they've got is, you know, not that at all. Right. And, and not in a good way. They won't be happy about it. Well, and it's the same thing. And by the way, Deborah, that's, that's part of what genre is about. You're making a pledge to your reader. Oh, that's right. 
That's a You're really good way to put pledge. it. You're saying, if you buy this book, by my putting it in this genre, I am making a pledge to you that I'm going to respect your reader interests mm-hmm. and yeah. what you expect from this book. And so, I mean, I think authors do have to think very seriously when they violate those boundaries because they're, John- they're basically break, breaking a promise to a reader. Yeah, genre is really a fairly new concept. I think what the the nineteen forties or so. I mean, when we're talking about the whole history of of, um, of literature, mm-hmm. um, it really began probably after the turn of the twentieth century, and not not very far into the twentieth century, um, when the the bookstore started started getting to the point where you know they were they wanted readers to be able to pick the kinds of literature or the kinds of stories that they wanted to read. And so that's when they started classifying the different kinds of the different kinds of fiction um, in particular. But even nonfiction has genres now. Um, you know, you've got memoir and biography, and then you've also got um, you know, well, history, anything the Dewey Decimal stuff, uh, Dewey Decimal System, or, or Library of Congress cat- uh, classifications. But those aren't almost aren't genres; they're classifications. Um, I don't know where I'm going with this. Sorry, go. No, that's well, they okay. serve, no, but they serve the same function. Lynn. Right, right. If yeah. I say it's a travel narrative and I'm putting it in nonfiction, that's a category. I'm making a pledge to you that when you, you pick up the book, you're going to you get a book about my travels in Africa and you're not, not the gonna... travels of an imaginary fantasy witch in Africa. Right, or or you're not going to pick up the book that's supposed to be about travels in Africa, and in fact, it's going to be about I don't know arts and crafts of you know Canada or something. <laughs> that, that's exactly right. right. So I mean, they, in a sense, it serves the same function. Right. Well, and I think that authors need to um, start understanding that when a reader picks up like one of the one of the genres that I think is really misunderstood by authors is paranormal. And Lynn, I know you're writing paranormal fantasy, you know, slice and dice. Can you explain what paranormal actually is? I think paranormal is probably anything that has to do with like magical creatures. Um, so that would encompass, I don't know, werewolves, vampires, um, ghosts, um, fae, um, any of that kind of shapeshifters. Um, any of that kind of thing. There's a subset of that paranormal romance, which usually involves, um, you know, a relationship between between two individuals, one of whom is some kind of magical creature to some degree. Um, so, you know, in, in my series, I've got a I've got a Native American shapeshifter, Skinwalker, um, who ends up as a guardian to the main character, who is um, who is a lawyer. <laughs> but anyway, um, nice. yeah. It's yeah, it's entertaining. It, it it was fun to write. It was a lot of fun to write. Um, but so so that's one so that's one definition of paranormal. But I, we were getting into a discussion on the book goodies authors group um, of where to put vampire novels. And yeah. Carla Carla was very adamant that they need to go into horror. I think. Well, no, that, I was saying classically they've been under classically. horror, and you. I mean, that's where they sort of began. Right. Exactly. You know, and exactly. I do think that horror fans, I mean, horror is really one of the, you know, in terms of short stories and actually getting paid to write fiction, that's actually one of the genres that's still living. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, most, most short fiction genres have withered away on the vine as paid markets. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But some of the few stories I've actually gotten money for. <laughs> 
<laughs> believe it or not, I've actually gotten paid um, are in the horror genre. So people okay. are still buying buying horror. That's interesting. They're still buying horror. So you, there are still some genres. Um, and so, you know, with paranormal, because I think of it as the reality underneath the everyday reality. And I do love writing paranormal short stories because I love the idea that in everyday life, there are these ghosts or these spirits or these magical forces. We're living the life we're living. We're not in Andalusia. We're not in a magical kingdom. Mm-hmm, we're living right. the life we're living. But beyond, beyond this reality, there's another reality. And I think that's a very, it's just a very interesting form to work with. And it does lend itself to a lot of subgenres like right. paranormal romance, which I do like, mm-hmm. um, because you can, you can do a lot of literary stuff in that genre. Um, that's yeah. a little harder to do when you're doing straight fantasy. Right. Well, straight fantasy, well, straight fantasy again, has a whole bunch of different, uh, different genres, paranormal <laughs> being just one of them. Um, but you've got, you know, you've got epic fantasy, which is the classic stuff, Tolkien, um, and then it, lately it has morphed into stuff like steampunk. And there has been a lot of cross-genre um, stuff I, that I can't pronounce the guy's name, but China Mieville, I think is how he – how it's, Yeah. Yeah. Um, who – one of my favorite books of his is The City in the City, which is actually sort of um, a, no, a noir detective novel. Um, with paranormal overtones, there's a well, not even overtones. It's like it, it's there are two cities that are right next to one another. Which I, hopefully this isn't a spoiler for people who haven't read the book. But there are two cities that are right next to one another. In fact, sort of overlap the the um, alternate universe overlaps, um, and that's that's the setting for this book. And and part of the um, part of the the thing behind it is that the people in in the real world, our real world, say, which is not the real world of the novel, they'll see occasionally through the veil this other city that is living, you know, that that exists in the same frame um, or, or like geographical area, I guess, sort of um, as their city. But the idea is that you don't pay attention to it. You you pretend you don't acknowledge it. You don't pretend you pretend that it doesn't exist. Which is um, one of the overriding premises of paranormal fiction. Yeah, that this yeah. stuff is actually always around us. Okay. Right, right, and we just don't. Well, which and I is just, very and, different from classic fantasy, which actually creates whole other worlds. Right, um, right, that are entirely separate. From our everyday reality. When you're reading Tolkien, you're never transported back to your everyday life. Right. So I no. think they actually provide very different psychological benefits to the reader. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I have a question about steampunk because you mentioned it kind of as fantasy where I've seen steampunk uh, mostly landing under sci-fi. Is that... Is that crossing? Is steampunk crossing over into both? And what yeah, exactly? I, what what would what can people expect from steampunk? What is steampunk? I guess that's true that it's more sci-fi. Yeah, it than, is more sci-fi. Yeah. When you but, look at the magazines that are publishing steampunk, yeah, they are yeah. mostly the the sci-fi magazines. That doesn't mean you won't find a literary magazine doing a steampunk issue, right? But. Mm, right. You know, generally, when you're looking at where who's publishing steampunk, it's coming from the sci-fi world. Sci-fi, of course, itself 
is an evolving, morphing Well, that's the thing. And again, you know, it it kind of falls under that whole umbrella of speculative fiction. I, I, maybe I'm just weird, but I tend to think of steampunk as being fantasy as much as sci-fi. Because you're talking about, I mean, you're, you're talking about, when you think of, I don't know, when I think of science fiction, I think in terms of, you know, the rockets and ray guns kinds of things, the futuristic kinds of things. Steampunk is sort of looking back to to an era before, you know, before ours where steam was the or, – or I guess an alternate universe where steam actually has become the, the dominant um, power source. Um, and and what authors have done, um, you know, to develop stories in that kind of universe. So I guess it's sci-fi. I don't know. I mean, it, it, it's – it's getting to the point to me anyway, where there's a, like I said, there's an awful lot of overlap between sci-fi and fantasy these days. Um, and, and I, I really, I like the term speculative fiction more when you're talking about the whole, when you're talking about the whole thing, sci-fi, fantasy, horror, even. Oh yeah. I like like the term speculative fiction. It's just that Amazon and the bookstores don't use it. (laughs) Don't use it. There are a lot of magazines. If you go and you're publishing in those genres, you can find magazines that will say, we are looking for speculative fiction. Mm-hmm. And they will list in parens, steampunk, <laughs> what soft they're sci-fi, after, actually. Right. Know, a number of things. But when you go to the bookstores, yeah. then they seem to go to these more granular, traditional categories. And I think that's where authors get confused. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I know one of the things that we do on Book Goodies when we ask people, when you submit a book to us, we ask you the main category and then we ask you to list the genres separately because I think that that's part of where people are getting confused and part of um, where readers want to know exactly what they're getting where I can't have speculative fiction, steampunk, sci-fi, speculative fiction, fantasy, steampunk. I can't list every single category because then our category list would be like incredibly out of control but we can use tags and genres to be able to refine what people are doing but no you still can't do fiction and nonfiction on the same book (laughs) well from the author's (laughs) point of view too sometimes it's difficult because authors don't really tend to most of the time we don't tend to sit down and go i'm going to write a steampunk story or i'm going to write you know, I don't know, a romantic fiction with paranormal, you know, overtones or romantic story with paranormal overtones, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, they just have a story they want to tell. Right. And it's and it's after the fact when you're to the point where you need to start thinking about marketing this thing mm-hmm. that you've written, that, you know, you have this you have this thing and now somebody wants you to put it in a category and you kind of don't know what to do with it in a lot of cases um, just because because it fits into either it fits into a whole bunch of stuff or it kind of doesn't really fit into any of the neat boxes you know what I'm saying yeah so so it's difficult I think if you look at the people who've done best in independent publishing mm-hmm. they tend to be very easy to define yeah when Harry I look, Potter when I sort of yeah, yeah. if you're going to just sort of look at people who are you know selling 10,000 books a month well, sure. And and you say, well, why is that happening? Well, one of the reasons it's happening is they're publishing in a very well-defined genre yeah. where there's no ambiguity around the edges. Right. It's definitely And so they story. can very clearly <laughs> target their book 
it's very easy for them to go to all these different websites. And it's something that, you know, I didn't get into writing for the money aspect, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, which is a good thing. Yeah, right. Uh, but if I had, you know, if I were sort of to flip it around and, and if I had studied some of these best cases, and I assume some people listening to the podcast might actually have money in mind. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Or you never know. Um, I would say, yeah, if you really have money in mind, you should define your genre fairly clearly and say, before you finish the book, you know, what, what genre in is this? Who is this target? Where will this appear on these different sites? Right. And even and even do your I mean, even write your plot, your your outline in those terms, if you're going to write romance, and romance is a huge, huge market um, and sells very well. I mean, if you're really in it for the money, and I've known this for years, if you're really in it for the money, write a romance, follow the formula, stick in your happy, happily ever after, you know, and there you Take go. Take it from somebody who didn't do that, yes. Well, yeah. and, money, and yes. me too. Thank you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, um, and again, you know, because I started in literary fiction and publishing in literary fiction journals, you know, my sort of constellation of factors was very different. But, you know, I've, I'm, as a market researcher, able to see sort of best case scenarios and who's, what's working and what's not. And I can see that people who are really performing at those top sales have followed formulas very carefully. And, and they know all- in advance where yeah. they're where their books fit in. And you can, you can name them. It's like Hugh Howie. Okay. Well, that's science fiction. Um, Bella Andre, she writes, she writes romance, you know, I mean, that's, it's, it's very cut and dried in those. You're right, Carla. Yeah, I think you're right. So I should probably plan my next series with that in mind. (laughs) I mean, it depends again. You you have to think about why you're writing and why you're doing this. And there are those of us who are writing from for emotional reasons or for, in my case, irrational reasons. Um, There's a lot of irrationality going on, okay? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I have like no idea why I started writing fiction since I had never had a, a burgeoning desire to do that. But one day I just started doing that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think if, if you're, if you're going to go into this in a purely rational way, yeah, genre is where you start. Yeah. Because there aren't that many self-published authors who are actually in the literary fiction space. Well, and do you think that part of, Carla, part of the reason that you are um, pretty good at defining genre and knowing where things need to be, is that because you did write for literary fiction magazines and they gave you feedback as to what they would publish and what they wouldn't? Well, actually, in, in a former life, I was a professor. Okay, that's so I, I used to <laughs> I used to teach some of this. Um, I think, yeah, I mean, the, when you write for literary fiction journals and you use a site like Duotrope Digest and I subscribe to Duotrope and you, you know, look at all the writing prompts and all the different calls for submission, you become very, very familiar with the different genre silos. Okay. And I think that even for people who are not working in short fiction, that's a useful exercise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And you really I think- begin to see who's publishing steampunk, who's publishing soft sci-fi, you know, who's publishing paranormal romance. 
you know, gay right. romance, all that stuff. You know, you begin to see it. You begin, and you can take a look at the at the look of the magazines and what kind of visual and and language they're using to draw readers, and you get a sense of all these different, uh, very fragmented literary worlds out there. Well, and I think that um, readers have probably evolved a little bit um, in the way that now. Uh, because everybody isn't going through traditional publishing, I think even in the last 10 years or so is where we've seen a preponderance of these new genres, if you want to you know, look at them as, as all being new, is because people are writing what they want to write and not writing what the publishers are, are accepting. Um, Maybe? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think... I, I don't think Amazon has started to subdivide and subdivide and sub sub subdivide its genres in response to what the authors are are looking for. I think Amazon has done it purely as a marketing thing. Mm-hmm. Um so that you've got your, you know, fiction, fantasy, paranormal, shapeshifters and skinwalkers, you know, subcategory. Mm-hmm. Um I don't I don't think the author certainly didn't ask for that. And when you go and you upload a book to KDP, to Kindle Direct Publishing, you can't pick shapeshifters and skinwalkers or whatever yeah, for your genre. I mean, it's it's basically fantasy and then, you know, you can there are some, you know, characters and I think their bots go through the the manuscript after that and and then assign the the smaller subcategories. Um so that's it's not really I mean it ends up being to the author to the author's benefit to some degree because you end up being in a whole bunch of little you know smaller lists and you can kind of play that play to that when you're marketing your book but it's but it's really for the readers who are looking for a specific kind of book mm-hmm. so anyway um, yeah, and I so, find more and more readers today when you speak with them and this is sort of the market research part of me Mm-hmm. They tend to define their reading interests by topic. Oh, yeah, okay. absolutely. Yeah, or by type of protagonist rather than by genre. So they, they're aware of the genre, but they'll say, you know, I like mystery novels in which it's a female detective who has problems. Right. That's right. a very classic way that a reader defines the kind of book she's looking for. So she has a number of authors in mind who write tortured female detectives. (laughs) But, you know, it's interesting to me that readers have actually gotten very narrow. Very specific. Mm -hmm. Very narrow. About what they're interested in. Yeah, They'll actually say, you know, lesbian paranormal romance or books with, you know, quirky women who have, you know, strange habits, you know, or as a very often, you know, mystery novels with older female detectives. Yeah. yeah. That's it, like a whole, you know, like a whole category now. Cozy well, mysteries with o- older female detectives that take place in rural England. The cozy I was gonna, mystery. Yeah, I well, was and I think say, that, that's that's murder she wrote, right? That's where that came from. But there yeah. are there are now, you know, tons and tons of those books. And so what you've gotten is readers coming in with these very, very narrowly defined ideas of what they're looking for Mm -hmm. and websites that actually don't correspond to that. 
Right. That's one of the reasons why we are trying to build out. And one of the things that brought this whole conversation up is that we have Bookities, which is the main huge site. Mm-hmm. And we put everything up there. But because people are getting readers want to be able to find what they're looking for. Carla, like you said, they want to find those cozy mysteries, which I never heard of that until a week ago. Um, you know, I'm like, what is what is this category on Amazon that's cozy mysteries? Because I'm building a mystery site, right? And on the mystery site, I'm looking through the Amazon categories for mystery. And, you know, I had to ask, what what is it? And I think it was you guys that, you know, clarified for me what it was. And the reason why I'm building the mystery site is so that people can find the mysteries that they're looking for without having to go digging through Goodreads or Amazon or, you know, even the main bookity site to try and find those very specific types of books that they're looking for. And so that authors have a place to put them where they'll be found. Seems sounds good to me. <laughs> sounds great. <laughs> but it also but it's but it's confusing. So like, and there's going to be a lot of crossover um, between like the mystery website is going to have a lot of the same stuff that the romance site is going to have because there's romantic mysteries, right? Right. But you can go to either site and find what you're looking for and then hopefully be able to, you know, go from there and, and find other authors or at least find the authors that you're looking for and and be able to see. So like you said, Carla, the websites aren't really helping you out. That's something that we're trying to do. So I think it's all part of this evolving publishing and, you know, readers are driving it. You know, like in one of the other author groups, someone was saying, oh, there's so much more short books now. And I don't, you know, authors are writing shorter books. I'm like, authors are writing shorter books because people want to read something that's shorter and complete because they're sitting at the doctor's office and they want to read while they're in the waiting room. And But but not too short because Correct. Uh, it, as as Carla was saying, there still doesn't seem to be much of a much of a market for short stories. They're they're looking for they're looking for novellas yes. or a shorter novel. But so anything over, I don't know, three, four hundred words, three, four hundred pages or so mm-hmm. um, is really a slog for most people. And you know, was, I've heard people, I've actually seen on Goodreads people complaining that a book was too long. Yes. You know, I yeah. love Dickens, but his books are very long. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I saw an article to, uh, this week, I think it was on the Washington Post, um, about how we're our experiences on the web are changing the way that we read things and the way we process things mm-hmm. to the point where where you our brains are becoming conditioned to basically hyperlinks essentially it used to be you'd sit down with a book and you had the narrative from you know page 1 to page whatever and you just followed you know you you concentrated on the story there were no outside distractions mm-hmm. um and you just read the story right well now people you go to a web page and there's not just the story that you're reading, but there are links to other stories that are similar or links to other things you might be interested in or not even the ads, but it's just like, I mean, it, the page is very busy. Yeah. Um, and so you might, uh, you know, and then there's the additional information, which in a newspaper say would be set off in a box to one side where you could sort of glance over going, yeah, well, okay, I'll, I'll look at that in a minute, but you could concentrate on the main story. But there are constantly things that are pulling your attention away from 
from the thing that you're looking at right now. And so people are starting to develop neural pathways, basically, that 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 take advantage of this. So it's great for taking in a smattering of information mm-hmm. and, and skimming a, a lot of different things. But to sit down and read, say, Dickens um, with or... Um, you know, other, War of the Worlds, uh, War of the Worlds. Um, anybody who has a really long or yeah. a, like really convoluted sentences, Henry Miller, I think, was one of the other was one of the other um, suggestions or one of the other examples. Anybody who has a really convoluted sentence structure with lots of independent, you know, independent clauses and stuff like that, it's it's hard for people who read today to wrap their brains around it. It's just almost too difficult, and they really have to force themselves to concentrate. I just thought it was interesting. That is really interesting. Um, And a lot of, uh, I I know myself as a reader, I I suffered a concussion a few months ago and I haven't been able to read the same way since. And Lynn, exactly what you said, like I can't read anything that's complex. Yeah. You know, and um, Carla, I well, would rather... I book of flash fiction just for you. Exactly. I would much rather read... <laughs> and by the way, I sell more of that than my traditional short stories. Well, because it's... You know, and you know, talking about very, very short, yeah. I have a yeah. book, Crazy Lovebirds, five super short stories. Okay. That yeah, sells we have... pretty well, and people have written me emails saying, I really like the fact that it was really short. <laughs> well, that's not a great compliment as a writer. It's like, oh, they were really short. Thanks. Well, you know, but it's a, it's a, I know, but it's a different, it's, 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 I, it's a different technique to write short fiction and write it well, to write super short fiction and write it well. I was, than it is to, the consequence to develop. Of the, I mean, flash fiction really came about, I think, in the, in the age of the internet and it, in a sense, is its own genre. Sure, and there's absolutely. another example of when I recategorized that in Amazon as flash fiction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The book started selling. Really? Because is I really it- needed to get, you know, I needed to make it clear that that's what it was because that there are people looking for funny flash fiction. Mm-hmm. And, of course, humor is easier to do in very short forms. Right. Right. Yeah, Essentially, you're telling novel, a shaggy dog me, story. Yeah. Let me tell you, it's a, it's a lot easier <laughs> to do. Well, and I think uh, Lynn brought up a good point is that, you know, it, it is very difficult to write short well. You know, some people write very verbose and there is no way that they can write something more compact. They just don't know how to trim the words out. So to be able to write short well is a very good skill, and it's something that, you know, people who can do that, then you can target the folks that are looking for it. But don't write short, incomplete, just because you want something that's a thousand words. You know, don't right. just write a thousand words and then leave them hanging. You we know, have a... We have a, I'm sorry, we have a, a feature. Although that is a it. separate genre, you know, experimental flash fiction. Oh, sure. You know, a lot of the literary magazines do like these very, these highly experimental flash pieces and literary fiction having its own conventions. You know, you really can't have beginning, middles and ends mm-hmm. in those right. kinds of pieces where, because I'm not writing experimental literary fiction, you know, I'm, I'm allowed to actually tell a whole story in a thousand words <laughs> exactly it actually does have a beginning middle and end mm-hmm. you right. know if you will a punchline. <laughs> right 
<laughs> right. I, what I started to say was uh, I'm, a, I'm a contributing author at IndiesUnlimited.com, um, and we have a flash fiction contest every week. We put up the prompt on Saturdays, and then on Tuesdays, um, it's 250 words, so it's really short flash fiction. So microfiction. Right, yeah. So and then on Tuesdays, we I think it's Tuesdays we put up the uh, we put up the the vote. So it's a popular vote. Then um, we pick the one winner a week, and then that the winning story gets put into an anthology at the end of the year. We've now got two anthologies out. Um, and, but yeah, it's it's there are people. There are some people that I have read their pieces and gone. You know, there's no end to this. I understand it's only 250 words, but we're not we're not asking you to write a scene. We're asking you to write a story, right? right? I mean, it needs to have a beginning, middle, and end. Still, this is what happened. Exactly. It's it's very interesting. Well, and I think that a lot of genres have evolved, like um, memoir. I don't know how long that has really been around as a genre because before it was always autobiographies and biographies. And I don't mm-hmm. remember um, as a teenager reading many memoirs. It was it was either autobiography or biography. And now what I like about memoir is that it is uh, stories told throughout someone's life instead of having to be, you know, I was born, blah, blah, blah. I, you know, I did this as a teen and, and then this, this is what happened to me as an adult and this is why I wrote the book. So, right. you know, I like the idea of, you know, uh, genres having a little more flexibility or the new genres coming up because it's more, it's, it's more interesting to read and you're not, I, I used to read stuff that I used to skip a lot. You know, Herman Wolk, he wrote wonderful, wonderful books and then, there would be entire chapters that were just stuff that I didn't care about. So I would just jump, you know, I'd be like, Oh, okay, this is the, this is the technical chapter. So I'm just going to skip that. Cause I don't really care. I want to get back to the people. Or, this is my, yeah, it's my dirty little secret on, with Umberto Eco too. I, I read the name of the Rose and I kept skipping over all the philosophy. It was like, okay, yeah, this is kind of interesting. My eyes are glazing over. Let's move on. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I call it male writer syndrome. <laughs> I find there are very few female writers where I'm skipping chapters, but I often find in male writers that even among the greats. That's very, that's very interesting. It is yeah, very you interesting. Know? I'm it's thinking, like kind of I'm, a guy I'm thinking thing. About it's like, it's I'm a think, guy thing. I'm thinking about the chapters that I've skipped, and yeah, Tom Clancy, Herman Wolf, Oliver you get, Stone. Well, well, Clancy just got to the point where, you know, his, I think his editor was just scared to touch anything. Yeah. You know, the, the, the longer the books, well, I mean, the later in his career it went, the longer and longer and longer his books got to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was just, yeah. I, I read the first two, I think, and I was done. But anyway. Oh, I read you, more than You don't that, have but... to include that quote. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we can leave that part out. No, I don't edit. <laughs> But we're talking again about traditionally published authors. And when we have, you know, such a plethora of indie authors, the traditionally published authors, not only do they get their, you know, their editing or not editing, um, they also get more direction as to how they classify their books. And they also have to stick closer to the formula for whatever genre they're writing in. And some of the authors that we're talking about actually created their own genre. You know, I mean, Tom Clancy wonderful novels you know military espionage whatever 
Um, and he yeah. took it a step further than what it had been before him. Right. Right. You're absolutely right. Yeah. You know, so I think that's generally true about genres, but they still have to deliver the primary benefits. Oh, yeah, totally. That the reader. I mean, I think that you can move plots in some different directions if you deliver the primary benefit that the reader expects from the genre. Right. You can have a vampire romance or a paranormal romance as long as there's a romance in there and, you know, there's the paranormal part that you're expecting. Well, I think the author has to think, like, why is someone, you know, take a mystery? Mm -hmm. Why is someone reading a mystery? Mm -hmm. Because they want to try and figure out the puzzle. A detective who's clever enough to figure out the crime when no one else can. Mm -hmm. Right. So they want to see the rational mind at work. So you can have a lot of different kinds of detectives and a lot of different kinds of crimes. You can even throw some romance in the crime, but you always need to show the detective figuring it out. Right. Yeah. Because that's what the reader's there for. So I think you have to think about genres in very simple ways Mm -hmm. in terms of these reader benefits before you get into all these offshoots. Right. Right. If you're going to think of yourself as a genre writer. Well, and then there's the whole romance versus erotica thing. You know, I mean, um, at what Keep point, clean. How, how, at what point does a romance cross over? Oh, I'm not going to discuss specifics. No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but at what you point. You got a nice Jewish girl here. She doesn't do erotica. <laughs> right. But at what point does, I mean, we've got, we have, like, if you go to a romance site now, um, and I started a romance site and there is an erotica category because that's part of what people are looking for, but I'm going to have to start classifying even the, the books that aren't classified as erotica. You have to like, look at, are they a clean romance? Are they a kind of, you know, they, they get into it a little bit romance. How, are, yeah. You know, how what, far what, is there? What are the quality of the euphemisms that we're, you know, yeah. using and, and how explicit is it and, and. What exactly do they do? And yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't yeah, envy your job. The cleanness of it is definitely, you know, needs to be clear to the reader. Mm-hmm. Because right. there are definitely readers who are looking for romance who have really do not want to see anything graphic. Right. No interest whatsoever. Yeah. You and, know, the Regency yeah. crowd, they're not looking for that. Right. People well, are reading, even, you know, the yeah. Duke's cousin. <laughs> yeah. Well, but even I mean, even some readers of contemporary romance aren't interested in in real explicit stuff. Well, I know with some of my short stories, when I share them with writers critique groups and, um, you know, asked women about, you know, should I take this scene in a, in a different in a more graphic direction? They said, oh, no, that would be really unromantic. Mm-hmm. Huh, That's okay. not what I want from this kind of story. I would be really bummed. If you introduce that kind of scene into this kind of, of fiction. So, you know, it's all about your tone. And again, with, with any given genre, you're going to have those kinds of gradations. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, I think right. romance and erotica, I mean, used to be erotica was just in a separate silo. Yeah. And now it's kind of crossing over. And part of the problem is that um, people, when they... People, when they read it, they they expect different things. But also, authors aren't really clear how, like you said, they aren't really clear how far they're supposed to go. And, like, 
there isn't as much sex in a in a in a romance that probably is considered erotica now that wasn't before you know so like before you'd pick up an erotica book and you know you were going to read about sex now right. you can pick I up, would hope now you can <laughs> now you can pick up an erotic romance and it might be a while before they get to the sex part because you know they're it's there but not as much as what it used to be Hmm. Okay. Um, but I think that part of the thing that authors need to understand is that, you know, there are a lot of readers that still want a clean romance or a, you know, a not explicit romance and that, you know, maybe they can get away with one kind of little bit of behind the door sex scene, but not really. And I when- think, you know, the very clear way that authors can think about it is to use the example of, you know, primetime network television. Mm-mm. That doesn't say, work anymore. <laughs> no, you know, I'm talking about before 10 o'clock. Well, even so, yeah, I mean, that I, doesn't work I have, anymore. <laughs> I have to tell you that ever since, okay, I'm many years old. Okay. When I was in college, I kind of pretty much stopped watching TV and I have not really picked up the habit again, except for, you know, when I was in Dallas, when in the eighties. Okay. So, but since then, if I sit down now and watch primetime TV, I am, and I'm not a prude, but I'm kind of shocked at what's yeah. what's out there. I mean, and it's not just the language; it's the sexual situations that that they're are just basically a matter of course anymore. So I, you know, I mean, I, I I'm I'm not putting myself out by any stretch of the imagination as as a typical reader of you know romance but or whatever. Still, but what I mean is, that but there that are people version, right? Yeah, still, there, there's still a huge chunk of the reading public. Mm-hmm. Right. In, right. For different genres, and we'll call them the cozy mystery crowd mm-hmm. or the Regency romance crowd, or you can take them in any different genre where they are going to be offended by profanity and graphic sex. Yeah. No. That's not what they're looking for in those genres, and those genres almost exist. I mean, if you write a Regency romance and you, you start introducing different kinds of elements, you're just disappointing your readers. Right. Yeah. So, you know, if you want to write that kind of book, you really should be looking for a different genre. Right. Or yeah. you before you classify on a on a website or wherever or use the tags on your book on, you know, on any site that you're putting your your book up, you don't want to use the tag Regency Romance if your book is borderline erotica. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, and yeah. I have to tell you, you know, I download a lot of samples on Amazon and very and I Personally, you know, for whatever reasons, I don't really like um, vulgarity or profanity. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are enough books by great writers in the world that don't have those things. Mm-hmm. It's a free world. <laughs> right. I get to read thousands of books. So I can actually pick the books I like. And uh, very often, you know, that's really where I'm going to delete the sample. Yeah. You know, because the, the premise of the book promised me, you know, a charming, funny satire (laughs) about something or, you know, use the word charming or use all those code words Mm -hmm. that promise me a certain literary experience. Right. Where I'm thinking light, charming entertainment. Right. And then I'm confronted with anal sex and profanity. Right. And I'm thinking, hmm, this is not light or charming. Didn't right. exactly deliver what was promised. Yeah, right. Exactly. And that to me is, is a lot of what, you know, the digital environment is about. 
because in a bookstore, I would have already done that browsing. Yes. Yeah, you know, you've got to be true to your store, book and you I look sift, inside the book. You yeah. know, I sift through the book. I'm going to sort of scour that. I'm going to have a lot more probably in the way of reviews going into the bookstore. So I, I know which books to go to and to avoid. Digitally, I'm probably going to be downloading that sample. Mm-hmm. Or that, you know, look in here. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's usually where I'm going, ding! Okay, maybe not. Yeah. Right. Well, and, you know, to the other side, you know, you're talking about people looking for light or whatever. If they're looking for horror, they want to be scared. Yeah. You know, and if they're looking for mystery, they want to be caught up in a mystery and trying to figure it out. And they don't want to be able to figure it out in the first chapter. Right. You right. know, they the whole point of, of the different um, genres is to, like you said, give the reader what they're looking for. You know, don't classify your book as horror just because somebody gets scared in the middle or something. I don't know. You know. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah. Or it's just, or, or it's predominantly, if it's predominantly a romance or, mm-hmm. you know, predominantly a fantasy, but you've got a vampire in it and then call mm-hmm. it horror. You know, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's not just disappointing the reader. You I mean, you could actively anger the reader and that can really come back to, to, to oh, hurt yes. you, me, you, hurt know, you, did, you know, later on. Yeah, I had to change the name of my first story collection. Okay. Oh, really? Because I had angered certain people. I mean, they wanted traditional romance, and my stories were kind of bummers. Ah. <laughs> you know, they're you romantic to ha- me because they have, you know, very the themes of haunted love and unrequited love and ghosts obsessed with their yeah, past no. loves. And you now, see, you gotta that have was, that happily ever after. But since almost nobody ended up happy. <laughs> Yeah. They were still alive at the end of the story. You did not fulfill the contract with the reader. You know, one woman wrote, I know romance, and this is not romance. And I and I sort of thought about it. At first I was offended because I thought of romance as Wuthering Heights romance. Right. Ah. Because to me, that's my model of romance, is impossible haunted love. Mm-hmm. Kathy and Heathcliff on the Moors. You know, I saw that. But you know, that that's re- not really romance. No. And in fact, I saw <laughs> Wuthering Heights reclassified by somebody not too long ago as, what was it? Was it paranormal or something? Yes. Or, I mean, yeah. the truth is that I realized that I was writing more metaphysical fiction or paranormal or, as I explained to Lynn before, that I had mixed up genres, which is a no-no, and I will never do again. Mm-hmm. But oh, again, you know, my story. model of romance, when I thought of like the most romantic book I'd ever read. Mm-hmm. It's it Wuthering was Heights? Wuthering Heights. I think that's okay. like the, you can't get more romantic than Heathcliff on the Moors. <laughs> the wind. And, you know, but of course, that's not what the romance genre is at all. That's not right. what people want, yeah. Right. Well, and and so, I, of course, I'd broken the pledge, and then, you know, I sort of changed the name and the description. Well, so and the other genre that I think is, uh, or top-level classification that I think is really misunderstood is um, young adult. Oh, yes. You know, I, you know, at least there's now there's new adult, which, you know, that takes the young adult that was bordering on having sex that shouldn't be in young adult at all, in my opinion. Um, 
you know, if I were to read a young adult book, I wouldn't expect there to be sex in there. So, you know, at least they started the new adult category that's or genre or whatever you want to call it that people are yeah. starting to write. So at least they're being honest. But to me, a young adult story is a story that appeals to teenagers to read where now I'm hearing that it is only if there are teenagers that are the main characters the main character. in the book. Right. Yes. Right. Yeah, that's essentially it. And I think what happened was the reason that they had to kind of separate this and, and start the new adult category was because people were seeing YA books sell very well. Mm-hmm. And when you have when you have the Harry, you know, Harry Potter and the Hunger Games and uh, Twilight um, and these books are, you know, making money hand over fist and people are like, well, I'll just, you know, write a book and I'll call it YA and then we'll just, you know, we'll make a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Um, and without really fully understanding the conventions of, of the genre um, and, and, and what people expect, what the readers expect out of it. I mean, there are a lot of adults who read YA. Right. Um, um, lots and lots of adults who read it and really like it. I and and I, you know, I mean, I read the Harry Potter books, and by and large, I liked them a lot. Um, well, books with teenage protagonists are are a big part of American literature. You know, if you think of Huck Finn, mm-hmm. well, sure, or Catch and on the Rise. So, I mean, YA has you know character the, the description of kind of teenage characters and and that told from the teenager point of view has always been like a big part of literature. So kind of siloing it out is a little funky in the first place. Of course there are going to be adults who are going to be reading Lord of the Flies. (laughs) I mean, because a lot of classic YA literature was written, it's from the perspective of the teen, but it's definitely adult, you know, it's literature. It's, yeah, it's, and it was never classified as why YA is really a new thing. I mean, it, it it has only been you know again this whole thing with with genres really starting within the last I don't know hundred years or so. But really, YA is even newer than that. It's within what the last twenty or so when when people were were authors, well, publishers really started targeting this young demographic of book buyers. Um, and, and saying, well, you know, we've got a, a kid who's the protagonist here. We'll make, we'll make this book YA. Um, you know, it's, it's a fairly new thing, really. I think it's, it's, it's important for independent writers because I think the younger readers are much less interested in whether something is traditionally published. Oh yeah, absolutely. Very true. It means nothing to them. You yeah. know, if they see something in a genre with a cool title, <laughs> And a cool cover. They're not. They're not interested in whether it was reviewed in the New York Times. No, no and and I think by and large, most readers don't care either. I mean, I readers, I've I've yet to meet anybody who has bought a book based on the fact that based on the imprint, based on who published the thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, they don't care. Well, it, it's, I, I sort of disagree with you because I know a lot of people who buy books because of reviews in major magazines. You know, well, they're buying books yes. based on a review in the New York Times or a review in the New Yorker or a review even in Publishers Weekly. And right. independents, by and large, can't get into those venues. So they're excluded from the sure. mindset, the purchase consideration set, even when they're writing in genres that could interest those people. Right. Yeah. But they're not but they're not picking those books specifically because 
they're published by a traditional publisher. That's not the criteria. The criteria is, oh, I read this review. It sounds like a really interesting book. I'd really like to read that. Um, yes. So, so the they're answer is saying, that, oh, it's published by Farrar. No, go no, buy exactly. It. Or you know, random get, penguin. It wouldn't get reviewed if it weren't published by Farrar. Well, right. So then the so then the challenge for indies is to figure out a way to break into to, to get into that um that ecosystem where they're you know, where the the people who review these books publishers mm-hmm. weekly New York Times whatever um begin to consider indies the good books as being worth their time and being worth a review. You know what? I and I don't know to, how to do that. I I need to disagree right here. Because I'm going to tell you that I was an, I haven't been an avid reader the last, let's say, 10 years. But up until then, my teen years and my 20s and when I was raising my kids, I was an avid, avid reader. And I picked my books by looking at them in the bookstore. I didn't care if they were reviewed by the New York Times. I didn't care if they were on the bestseller list. I didn't care about anything except that this book was something that I picked up and I liked the blurb on the back because it told me about a story that I wanted to read and I flipped through the book to see what was in the book. Whether it was reviewed by anybody or in a literary magazine or anything like that, couldn't care less. Um, so you were but that was before this this new environment. So everything that you I were still looking don't, at I still don't had been anything. pre-screened by a bookstore along those dimensions. Well, okay, but how are the bookstores getting the books? The bookstores are getting the books because the reps from the publisher come in with their yeah. catalogs. So, I mean, that was a different system, really a different yeah, ecosystem. Even now, even now, I... I'm not saying this is all readers. I'm saying there's yeah. a chunk of readers. Oh, there is. There are oh, definitely sure. a Absolutely. chunk. But I have to say that I think that authors are spending a little too much time on. Um, I think they need to be more pay more attention to other aspects of their work, and not worry about getting into publishers weekly. I think that'll come in time when there are fewer books that are being traditionally published, and those places have to come out. To, well, and when uh, Publishers Weekly stops charging indies for for you know writing a review of their books as much right. when they get when they give them to traditionally published authors for free, right? Um, through the publisher, yeah. I mean, it's a yeah, it's it's a. But I think um, it's very interesting. Yeah, I think that uh, you know, like the whole subject that that we're talking about is that authors need to be true to their audience. And by being true to your audience and being honest in your uh, in your genre, your tags, you know, in your book blurb and how you present your book, I think that's how you're going to be more successful. And I think readers are going to be very grateful to authors that um, like you, I think you said it earlier, Lynn, that they delivered on the contract that, you know, the reader expected them to. So um, going going back to, to whether or not you pick a book from a review, I really didn't start paying attention to reviews until really, you know, the serious reviews and the serious review places until I was in grad school for creative writing. And I was and that was one of the things that, you know, sort of they and I'm, I'm stumbling over myself. Sorry. Um, but what, but one of the, it was like one of the criteria for really good books, as Carla was saying, was one of the criteria for really good books is to get a review in one of these places. Oh, so this is a book that's worthy of my time. Before that, 
yeah, I was exactly where Deborah is. I would go to the, you know, go to the bookstore, pick up a book. Hmm, that looks interesting. Flip through it and see if, it, you know, see if it interests. Which is me. my point about YA is that those younger readers, yeah. there are no younger readers who are looking for book reviews. Once no. you oh, get no, into yeah. the older set, then you still have a chunk of the public that's looking for bestseller lists or looking for reviews or right. looking for mainstream sources. But the younger market is really yeah, wide care. open for independence. Yeah, and it seems to me of the genres, it's probably the most fertile ground for selling. Yeah, the interesting thing about the kids, though, is that who's paying for the books and who is you – know, so, so you're also sort of appealing to getting the – getting the interest or the attention of the parents who are paying for the books for kids in, I don't know, middle school or something who may not have their own disposable income or not as much as you might think. Um, and that's the interesting thing with e-readers too. How much are the kids spending on getting these books? Um, and where's the money coming from? So you have to, you sort of have to appeal to the parents as well to some degree, at least for, at least for the younger, younger kids. Well, and yeah, there are parents who are going to go out and buy a, a specific series for their kids because they read it when they were kids. Right. Absolutely. Although my kids really weren't interested in Nancy Drew at all. I read a lot of Nancy Drew, but my kids are in their 20s now. Um, but I read a lot of Nancy <laughs> Drew when I was a kid, okay? And then yeah. it, when they got to be the age, I was like, Nancy Drew. And they're like, these are really kind of not very good, Mom. Okay. Um, no, but they were into Tamara Pierce, who is fabulous, by the way, as a YA author. She's great. Well, and I think another thing, too, that defines possibly, you know, YA more than others is what are kids exposed to by the time they start reading? So Nancy Drew was great for us. Completely but, different now. Yeah, but absolutely. now kids are like, okay, I know that story. Yeah. You know, the story is something that I've heard. I've seen it on TV. It's predictable because current stuff has built upon the stories that were told back then. Right. Yeah. Well, then they're also kind of squeaky clean compared to some of the other stuff. They don't really, um, they don't uh, tackle difficult subjects. Mm -hmm. um, the stories really kind of aren't very well written, um, <laughs> <laughs> which I'm it seeing now. It was formulaic. Now. Formulaic. Well, absolutely. Absolutely. But, so, you know, okay. certain formulas do really well. You know, like you said, a romance book written to a formula it's it's going to sell off the shelves whether it's really well written or whether it just fulfills what the reader was looking for you know yeah. it was a 99 cent i want something to read quick this one looks good yep this one looks good yeah. so yeah well um i think this has been a very interesting discussion um carla do you have any final thoughts you'd like to leave people with um as far as genre i think you could learn from my error <laughs> <laughs> as a short story writer which is don't don't blend genres don't make the mistake of thinking that people want a mix of things mm -hmm. be clear um you know i took the advice in putting together a short story collection uh, rather than following my own instinct and doing only one type of story i blended different genres together mm-hmm and that turns out to be a bad thing to do. So <laughs> At least in I would terms say of selling books, yeah. In terms of selling books, um, people who read the book like the book, but it's, it's really a bad way to sell because you really now have confused readers. They're not sure what benefit they're going to be getting. Mm -hmm. 
So don't blend your genre as much as possible when you're positioning your book. Pick a genre and be very clear to your reader what it is. And as you're writing it, also be clear that you're delivering the benefits that it, of at least one genre. Okay. Yeah. So that's what I would. That's awesome. And Lynn? I think it's going to be very interesting over the next few years to see where this whole thing with genre goes. We, we've been talking about how it's, you know, the, the publishing companies started to, um, started to institute this thing, um, this concept uh, of different kinds of books to help the authors. And now it's gotten to the point, as we were talking about in Amazon, with you know the the categories are getting more and more narrow as time goes on and i wonder whether we're going to max out with the amount of of narrowness to um some of these categories and we may end up pulling back i don't know um it, it'll be fun to watch and um i'm going to be taking carla's advice to heart and um not mixing my categories and try to try to write something that you know delivers on the promise and so that the readers get what they're paying for. That's, that's a great way to put it. <laughs> um, Carla, where can people find you on the, on the web? Well, I do have a blog, Carla Surrett at Blogspot. And uh, go to my Amazon page as well. And I'm on Goodreads. Okay. Can you, because um, some of the people are going to be listening to this and they aren't going to be landing on our page that's going to have your name on it. Can you quickly spell out your name so people can look for you? C-A-R-L-A-S-A-R-E-T-T. Cool. And And if you Google that, you will get to my blog. Awesome. It's always (laughs) great when that happens, isn't it? (laughs) It's really awesome. These people like wandering off the street. Um, uh, My name is Lynn Cantwell, L-Y-N-N-E-C-A-N-T-W-E-L-L. My blog is hearthmyth, H-E-A-R-T-H dash M-Y-T-H. Uh, uh, dot blogspot.com um, and I'm also on Amazon and um, on Goodreads and I got a Facebook page which is um, if you Google or if you look up Lynn Cantwell on Facebook you will find me awesome well I want to thank both of you for spending an hour hour or so <laughs> with um, with our with myself and with our listeners and um, I'm, I want to invite all of our listeners to come on over to bookities.com do a quick search for uh, for the podcast title, and you will uh, find the podcast, and you can leave us your thoughts about genre and uh, how you buy books, and and whether certain genres are not filling what you as a reader think they should be. So come on over to bookgoodies.com, b o o k g o o d i e s dot com, and thanks for listening, and everybody have a great day. <laughs>